St. Warburg's Derby. Good evening, I hope you're all well. We have been trying over the last few months to kind of track loosely through a sermon series, thinking about what it means to to live whole lives and holy lives and to kind of pull that together a little bit. It's been a bit bitty because we've had a few different guest speakers come and a few interviews to think about. And tonight we want to tackle a new subject. But first, I need to talk about a rumor that I've heard. There has been a rumor that has been um, mentioned within quite a few members of people of St. Werberg's, and uh, this rumor has grown and grown, and I just want to confirm to everybody, it is coming home. It is coming home. We can't, I mean, I'm sorry, if you don't like football, indulge me for a few moments, but... Um, yeah, yeah, I'm get, you're going to have to, because I've got the microphone. I, like, <laughs> unbelievable, unbelievable that England have got to a semi-final of a major tournament. This is, like, beyond my wildest dreams. And because it has happened, like, in my head, we have jumped straight back to 1996. That's where my head goes. We're, we're back with Gaza not quite stretching far enough to be able to turn the ball into the net when the, we were, should have beaten the Germans. And... Like, I've just been transported there, the whole the song. I can't get It's Coming Home out of my head. It's like permanently on repeat, both the 96 version and the 98. I could sing both of them word perfect for you right now, but I won't. It's ridiculous. I am a grown adult. Why have I got so emotionally involved? At the penalties the other night, you know, I sat for two and a half hours in front of the TV and my watch is one of these clever watches that tells me kind of how my heart rate goes. My heart rate peaked at 120 for sitting for two and a half hours. That is nuts. Because I'm kind of so emotionally involved. And I, I want to tell you, everyone who is um, under the age of 28, okay, what normally happens to England in a World Cup semi-final is we lose on penalties. I just want to put that out there right now. That's, this is the normal situation for us. That's what I've gone through all of my life. Maybe this year. Maybe this year. But in, in having these memories and having these flashbacks, thinking back to 96 and 98, kind of, I've been transported back to the time when I was younger, which was a miracle, and I even had hair. And this kind of dream of what might be, not just from football, but life for me. 96 was end of A-levels, 98 France World Cup in the middle of university, and like, the world was in front of me, possibilities everywhere. I, this was going to be a ex really exciting time for my life. I could, I could choose and careers and do whatever, and I was off and I was up and running. It was also, you know, 96 was the greatest single era for music ever. I mean, it's gone drastically downhill ever since. But that Britpop 90, mid-90s thing is absolutely where it is. People are... <laughs> I am going to get to something meaningful in a moment, so just bear with me. I'm now 40. I'm now 40 years old, and life has changed. I mean, I'm not quite in the full-blown midlife crisis. I have grown a beard... And the tattoo might have to come at some stage. But 
life is different now. Now I, I, now I get to look back on what has happened over these last 22 years. Now I get to see whether or not those dreams that I had as an 18-year-old have come to fruition. Am I now in the place where I believe God wants me to be? I don't know the questions that you're asking. I don't know what stage of life you are at. I don't know whether you're looking ahead with excitement or whether you're looking back with joy or regret or whatever it may be. But as I was reflecting on these, this different time period, I was reminded of a book I read by a guy called Gordon MacDonald. He's a, a pastor from the States. He's now in his 80s. He's an amazing man. And he tried to define the question of every generation, every kind of decade. And this rang true for me as some of these questions. Now, they're a little bit simplistic kind of generalizations. But these were the questions he said. That in your teens, you're asking the question, who am I? And who am I becoming? When you move into your 20s, you start asking the question, well, what am I going to do with my life? And who am I going to do it with? When you're into your 30s, you might start thinking, I've got all these responsibilities and obligations. How do, I, how do I prioritize? How do I make sense of this? When you're into your 40s, you might start asking yourself the question, am I a success or a failure? Gordon MacDonald suggests that when you turn in, go into your 50s and you're kind of in, heading into the second half of your life, you might ask the question, who is this younger generation that wants me out of the way? And how do I make sense of the disappointments in my life? In your 60s, you might be asking the question, how much longer can I keep doing that which defines me? Or do I need to change? In your 70s, you might be asking the question, how do I live with loss as maybe friends start dying? Into your 80s, You might ask the question, does anyone remember who I once was? Can anyone remember, even myself, who I once was? And if you make it into your 90s, you might start asking the question, what happens when I die? What is the next stage for me? Now, as I read those questions, and as I said, it's a kind of simplification of some things. For me, the decades that I've been through, they resonate. Those questions resonate for me. I can remember asking those questions as a teenager. Who am I? What am I becoming? Into your 20s, start try, searching for a, a girlfriend, and then I find Anna, and we get married, and it's, this is how we're going to do life together. And into your 30s, children come along, and job grows, and how do we work all this out? Questions that we might be asking ourselves. And then, of course, the big question Alongside all of those questions that happens with life, life just goes on and we have to face it. The big question in the midst of that is, where's God? Where does God fit into this? Does God make any difference to these questions? Does he have the answer to any of these questions? Or do I, am I just here to do life on my own and make the most of this? And so we're going to jump into a passage of Scripture tonight um, that we, you may be familiar with, you may not. It's from the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've got a Bible with you, or if you've got an app on your phone or whatever, you might want to get it out now. Otherwise, the passage will come up on the, the big Bibles in the sky in a few moments. Um, but Ecclesiastes, there's, there's no actual author. Well, we don't know who the author of this book is. It is suggested that it is King Solomon. And most scholars believe that it was King Solomon. And Ecclesiastes comes in the middle of three books. There's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. And it's thought that King Solomon wrote most of those those books. 
He wrote Song of Songs as a young man. It's a book all about love, and, and it's quite, you know, risque if you're into that type of thing. If that's what you want to read, that, but that's a whole other sermon. But go read that, because his senses have been awoken. It's suggested that he wrote Proverbs as an old man, as a man who has kind of got to the stage where he's able to write all this stuff about wisdom. He's kind of earned the right to pour out his wisdom upon other people, but it's suggested that he writes... Ecclesiastes, right slap bang in the middle of his midlife crisis. That this is him on a bit of a rant. This book is not written as an encouragement to people. You're not going to read this book and go, oh, life's great. This is a midlife crisis. This is someone who's questioning everything and wants to rant about it. So we're going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Uh, because there's lots in here that kind of repeats all the way through the book and has some stuff that it needs to speak to us tonight. So Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Can you see the midlife crisis <laughs> kind of straight away? What do people gain from their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome. It's more than one can say. The eye has enough of see- the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, "Look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens with a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, all of them that are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learnt that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I think that last bit sounds a little bit like the bit in... um, Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Just me, okay, let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, whilst this might seem slightly confusing passage to read this evening, we ask, Lord, that you uh, speak to us through it. That you speak into our hearts and minds. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's a full-on rant. 
this passage, that's just this chapter one that goes on for another 12 chapters and it kind of full of this kind of pouring out of this midlife crisis from this man going, it's utterly meaningless. I can't, I've, I've had enough of the whole lot. I'm going to shave my head, grow a beard and get a tattoo. Job, to t- time to move on. Something different needs to happen. And there are three phrases that are used throughout this letter that occur a lot in just chapter one, but repeat many, many times throughout this book. And the first one is this. It's meaningless. The Hebrew word here is the word havel, and it means vapor or breath. When we were here in the winter, you could see this vapor kind of disperse. The words actually being used here is in Havilim. It's the kind of the plural form of vapor. It kind of means the vapor of vapors. Meaningless. It's just gone. It's nothing. There's nothing there. It's just disappeared. Sometimes this gets, word gets translated as vanity. Something that comes and vanishes. And Solomon's suggesting that it's all Meaningless. He starts by talking about work. Now, why do people, what do people gain from their labors at which they toil under the sun? He's like, well, you can keep working, keep working hard, but it's all meaningless. He talks about generations come and generations go in verse 4. But the earth remains forever. It's just all meaningless. Rivers, tides, sunsets. He always gets to this stage where kind of life is just repeating itself. It just goes round and round and Streams go into the sea and the sea never fills up and life just happens. And sometimes that's what life feels like to us, right? In my house with three daughters, it's like a laundrette. Every single day, there's a load of washing going on and there's more washing to be folded. It's just constantly happening time and again. And so we get excited about the big things in life. We get excited that England might get through to the World Cup final. But actually, you know, the next day happens and you've got to feed the kids and you've got to get up and you've got to go to work and you've got to do the washing and you've got to make your bed and you've got to... It's just wearisome. It's just tiring. It's just kind of this repeating nonsense. And by the midlife crisis of Solomon, he's saying, this is just meaningless. Over and over and over it goes. As you read on into chapter 2, we see that he, he picks up at the beginning of chapter 2, he talks about pleasures. To be honest, at this point, he's talking about sex. Solomon, it's reported, had 300 concubines and 700 wives. This is a man who had a lot of sex. And his words are, it's meaningless. It's all meaningless. He goes on to talk about wisdom and folly, and he says again, it's all meaningless. He goes on to talk about toil and hard work, and he says, it's meaningless. He's on a rant. He's adamant that there's nothing that we can gain from any of these things. He sounds a little bit like a um, quote that I heard from Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey, the actor said this, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. In other words, it's just meaningless. The second phrase that's used many times in the book of Ecclesiastes is the phrase under the sun. It's used 29 times in 12 chapters. 
Verse 9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Verse 13. He picks up this phrase, which slightly changed. He says, I applied my mind to study and explore by wisdom all that has been done under the heavens. And then again in verse 14. I have seen all the things done under the sun. Solomon's saying that he is looking at earthly things. He's not looking at spiritual, heavenly, other things. He's looking at what's here, what he, what he can feel and touch and experience and, and be engaged with. He's looking at physical, temporal things. He's not trying to think of anything other. And then the third phrase that's used a lot is this phrase, I said in my heart, or I thought in my heart. Verse 16, I said to myself, it's like this sense of, I think everything's meaningless. I've searched everything under the sun. I've looked at everything on the earth that I can feel and touch and experience and be engaged with. And so I said to myself, I chose my course of action. I chose what I believe, and I think it's all meaningless. I had a friend at university. Uh, he was my best mate. Growing up with him, actually, at college. We went off to the same university together. And he became the CU president, the Christian Union president at uni. And um, he did that for a year, and then they asked him to even do it for the second year. And in his second year, he got into this phase where he was thinking, I can't, I can't be done with this God stuff anymore. Ultimately, what he wanted to say was, I want to live my own life. I want to make my own decisions. I want to see what's under the sun, and I want to choose some of those things for myself. Now, he tried to rationalize it and run around the houses with it and try and make it out that it wasn't him, but it was ultimately he was saying, I choose me. I choose what's here and now rather than what's heavenly and eternal. Solomon isn't looking for insights from God. In his wisdom, in his own creativity, he has forgotten his creator. What's interesting through the book of Ecclesiastes is the words that Solomon uses for God. The Jewish people would have known that the name that God had given himself was Yahweh. In Exodus chapter 2, God says, I am who I am, Yahweh. And this was such a holy name. This is such an intimate name, such a precious name that they would, um, they would not even use the name. When you read the Old Testament and you read the word Lord, it's, it's often written in capitals. It's there is a kind of, because they don't dare write the name Yahweh. But in Ecclesiastes, Solomon gives God the title Elohim. It's, it's a title. It's a name. It means something other. It's someone who's out there, who's removed from me. It's like, I don't know whether you have these conversations with your friends and other people where they say things like, oh, well, I know that there's a... There's a good energy. The universe owes me. They're kind of, it's like this sense that God is something other than, rather than personal and mighty. And it's that God that Solomon has rejected. It's that God that has, in his mind, his view of God, that he's other and out there and removed from him, that allows Solomon to say, well, I'm rejecting him. I'm going to choose me. I'm going to choose what I can see and experience. And actually, it's all meaningless. I'm done with a lot of it. 
I don't know about you, but um, when I question God, when I have questions, when I face difficult moments, I still can't, I cannot remove God from the equation. Almost no matter how hard I try. I cannot get my head around the fact that we must be created. That there is a God who's pulled this all together. I know some people will disagree with me, but this is me. This is what I, this is what I feel. So I cannot believe that we're just a random bunch of atoms that just come together and exploded and however many years later I've got a liver and a kidney that works and I, can, I have emotion and I can experience my, my daughter saying my name for the first time. I cannot get to that place. But what I really question, what I really struggle with, is can I do it? I don't question God and his faithfulness and his goodness, but I can question my ability to live out my life in the way that God wants me to. But sometimes it just gets too hard, and I can't cope. And what I've missed in those moments, and what Solomon has missed in those moments, is that it is all grace. It is not a God who is removed and distant and over there looking at us like a a father who just wants to punish us and discipline us. It is a God who draws near. A God who loves us and who's with us and it is a free gift. It's not Elohim. It's Jesus Christ. The God who draws near to me. Who loves me and knows me and longs to be in a relationship with me. It is a free gift gift. Paul writes in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, he writes these words. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, God wants to be reconciled to us. He wants relationship with us. And Jesus has made that happen. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Be in relationship with him. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not about whether we can live it out. It's not about how good we are. It is about how good he is. As God's co-workers, chapter 6, verse 1, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. It's the Greek word of the Hebrew word meaningless. Do not just receive God's grace and let it vapor off and disappear into nothingness. Don't just say, oh, okay, I know a God who loves me and that's it and it's gone. Receive God's grace and allow it to shape you and mold you and change you. When we accept the gift of grace, when we accept the gift that God wants to draw near to us and he isn't distant and removed, suddenly everything finds meaning. 
suddenly we find meaning in pleasure and wisdom and work because we're, we're doing it for God. We're accepting the gifts that he's given to us. We find purpose and identity because we are forgiven and set free and brought back into a relationship with him. It goes from being vapor to being real. Living water flowing through us. Freddie Mercury, it's a famous quote from Freddie Mercury that you may well have heard before. Fame and success have brought me everything except a loving, ongoing relationship. And sometimes when we hear that, that quote, we, we stop there. We forget the rest of everything that Freddie actually wanted to share. And he said this, I seem to eat people up and destroy them no matter how hard I try to make things work. Sometimes I wake up in a cold sweat, screaming with fear because I am so alone. That's why I go out looking for someone who will love me even if it's just for one night stand. I fall in love far too quickly and I end up getting hurt and scared. It seems I can't win He is longing for an ongoing, loving relationship. That is what we are made for. And when we find that relationship with Jesus Christ, the God who created us all and loves us and who is with us and for us, suddenly we find meaning, hope, purpose, and identity. It's where we find life, it's where we find meaning, is in relationship with Jesus. If you remove this God from our world you still face life. As a vicar, I often hear people talking about this question of suffering. The question, how can I believe in a God of love when life sucks, when this has happened and that's happened? And so they kind of remove this God that is Elohim, who is other, whose title, whose power, who's different. And they say, "I, I can't deal with it. In that moment... They're still left, even in removing God from life, they're still left with suffering. And that's at the point where Solomon would say it's just meaningless. I want to say, change your view of who God is. Don't see him as other over there. See him as the God who draws near, who longs for reconciliation, who comes, brings us back into relationship with him because he died for your sin and for mine so that we can be reconciled to him so that when we face suffering and unfortunately we all do we can know the God who is with us at that moment in time with us for us pouring out his love upon us sustaining us and upholding us in the midst of it all what's fascinating is that by the end of Ecclesiastes Solomon writes this now all has been heard Here is the conclusion of the matter, or the conclusion of his midlife crisis. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the duty of all mankind. That's where he lands, that's where he finishes. And it's about knowing who God is and being in relationship with him. 